Hi, Pitchfork Economics listeners. I'm Ashley, one of the producers here at the show. We're taking a break for the summer, which means no new episodes. But in the meantime, we're going to be re-releasing some of our favorite past episodes, like this one from April 2021 with Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, aka Ben and Jerry. We had them on the podcast to discuss whether business leaders should use their power and resources to make meaningful change. And if you don't already know, you'll learn during the interview that Ben and Jerry basically created the playbook for how businesses can embrace activism. And they're still at it today over four decades later. We hope you'll listen. And if you like what you hear, please remember to follow the podcast and leave us a five-star rating or review. Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield definitely are heroes in the world of people who care about business for social purpose. When people talk about businesses being ethical, what they mean by that is that they're not breaking the law. They have not yet been criminally indicted. (laughs) Right. That's business ethics in America. And I think we need to raise the bar a little bit. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Today on the podcast, I'm just giddy because we get to talk to Ben and Jerry uh, of Ice Cream Fame. Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield uh, are, in fact, the co-founders of Ben and Jerry's Ice Cream and uh, definitely are heroes in the world of people who care about business for social purpose and have done a marvelous job. You know, they sold the company some time ago, but did a great job in making sure that the company did right by its employees, its community, the country at large and its shareholders too. And it'll be super fun to chat with them on whether business can be a force of good or how business can be a force of good in societies. Let's start by getting your slates. Uh, uh, Tell us your name, who you are, what you do. Uh, Let's start with Ben and then Jerry. Uh, Ben Cohen, co-founder of Ben & Jerry's co-chair of the campaign to end qualified immunity. I try to end qualified immunity and uh, not eat too much ice cream. I am Jerry Greenfield. I have the identical titles to Ben. I'm the co-founder of Ben and Jerry's and I'm the co-chair of the campaign to end qualified immunity. And I've already eaten too much ice cream. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. And we're going to talk about a variety of things, uh, ending with your priority around uh, ending qualified immunity. But you guys are icons in the world of business with a purpose, a, a double or triple bottom line, which you call the double dip that prioritizes profits and people. And uh, I, I can't remember which one of you said it, business was an experiment over whether it's possible to use the tools of business to repair society. And that's what we really wanted to talk about. We'd love to have your updated views on whether that's possible and the degree to which 
businesses must either be encouraged or required to do pro-social things. So Ben, why don't we get your views and then Jerry? I think it's very possible for business to influence the society. I mean, business currently influences the society uh, in a big way. You know, they control our elections through campaign contributions. They control our legislation through lobbying. And they control the news we read through ownership of the media. I think what's changed is that people now realize that business is the most powerful force in the society and that if there's going to be any change that happens in society, business has a role to play and it's pretty much business that's either going to drive the change or it's business that's going to resist the change. And I think that consumers are looking at their businesses to to use their power in the public good. Jerry, what do you think? I think it's a little hard to expect big public companies to be taking the lead. It's been smaller entrepreneurial companies that have been doing it. But lately, certainly since the murder of George Floyd, you've seen businesses and business leaders speak out as never before. And particularly with the recent law suppressing voting in Georgia, you're seeing more businesses and business leaders speak out about that. It partly comes from businesses wanting to do the right thing. And as Ben says, a lot of it comes from consumers insisting that businesses be about more than simply making as much money as they can and thinking about their own self-interest. You know, I'm in violent agreement, Ben, with your assessment about the power of business to shape society. I guess the, the, the question I have for both of you guys is a couple, two, two part question. The first is, do we want to live in a society where the CEOs of the biggest companies in America get to define the shape of the society? Is that a responsibility we want them to have? And, you know, a corollary of that question is, if we are somewhat unsatisfied, dissatisfied with where we're at today, what can the society do to to either encourage or require business people to do more pro-social things? I would say that business is currently controlling the shape of our society. So all they're doing is they're, they happen to be controlling it in their own narrow self-interest. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it used to be that uh, government was more powerful than business and government regulated business and controlled business. Now business controls government. You know, they decide what bills gets passed. They decide who gets elected. If business really wanted to to get this HR1 passed, right. they could get it passed. Right. You know, how many billions of dollars a year do they spend on lobbyists in DC? I mean, it's it's unfathomable. If they started elevating that to the top of their lobbyist agenda instead of how can we make more money uh, at the expense of the the community, we could see decent election reform in our country. 
Yeah, to be clear to listeners, H.R. 1 is the uh, Voting Rights Act that's going through Congress. But I mean, you know, look, I'm a business person. I've started a bunch of companies. You guys are business people. You know, I'm I'm a huge believer in capitalism, but, you know, capitalism only is sustainable if capitalists effectively are required to operate their businesses in ways which sustain the society and the democracy. And Ben, you're absolutely right. Government used to be more powerful than business. And certainly for the last 45 years, 50 years over the neoliberal era, it has not been. I think that we are at a moment right now with the Biden administration where that may be changing radically, which I think is a really, really good thing. But I'm just wondering how you guys think about, you know, the tension between the society requiring good behavior and businesses being uh, sort of left to their own devices to do that at their pleasure. I mean, Jerry, what do you think? It's a hard tension, right? I, you know, I happen to believe in good government and looking out for the good of all. Uh, I, I don't believe that people and capitalism should go unfettered and do whatever it wants. Uh, I'm a person who believes we're all in this together. And we all need to take care of each other. And, uh, you know, that's sort of a fundamental starting place for me. You could say that business has modeled the kind of the breakdown of society based on narrow self-interest. What business, you know, business is the most powerful force in the society what it the the type of behavior that it is modeling is make the society benefit your own narrow self-interest right that i'm going to fight for my own narrow self-interest i'm not really going to care about the interest of the community as a whole yeah and so the most powerful element of the society has modeled that behavior and other people are following that model yeah that's right so the economists came up with this concept called homo economicus, which was the idea that all people are perfectly selfish and rational. And then we extended that to our corporate governance idea, which is because of that, the only purpose of the corporation can be to be selfish and rational. And surprise, we end up with a society where people are not taking into account the broad long-term interests of the entire society. And here we are. Well, you know, on the other hand, you ha you have the rise of B Corps, benefit corporations, which are growing tremendously. Uh, you know, if you if you look at a company like Ben and Jerry's, which Ben and I no longer operate, so you know we're not calling the shots there, but the company's been very outspoken about racial justice. It's been outspoken about Black Lives Matter. And the company continues to do very, very well in the marketplace. And I think it's because consumers are responding to that. And when other businesses look at that, they're going to say, yeah, there is value in standing up for people who are not getting justice in this country. So other than just relying on entrepreneurs and CEOs to uh, adopt the kind of values that uh, the two of you brought into your company. What can we do? Is it is it more regulation? Is it more incentives? Is it 
the combination of the two? How do we get more socially conscious uh, companies out there and uh, operate the economy in a way that doesn't just benefit shareholders? Well, for one, I think that uh, the original concept of a business incorporating, of getting a corporate charter from a particular state was based on the idea that the business was working in the best interests of the community, of the society as a whole. And, you know, those corporate charters were not pro forma. They, you know, the idea was to look at how the business was behaving and decide whether you wanted to renew or revoke their charter. So I think we could move back to that. Uh, and the other thing is that you know, consumers are incredibly powerful. If they just uh, use their voice and do it somewhat in unison, consumers change the way corporations behave. Yeah, I, I think we need to change the way we look at businesses. You know, it's funny because uh, when people talk about businesses being ethical, what they mean by that is that they're not breaking the law. That that is seriously, that's yeah. that's the threshold of an ethical business. And I think we need to raise the bar a little bit. They have not yet been criminally indicted. <laughs> right. That's business ethics. Right, right. In and, America. Then, and then you look yeah. at all the of absence our... of criminal behavior. Can you guys so you reflect on your business experience? Is there anything that comes to mind that, you know, look, business is trade-offs. Like every day you're making trade-offs about product quality and uh, wages and like can you think of a moment in your careers where you really were confronted with uh you know a, a challenge where you had to balance what would be good for the community or your workers against uh you know sort of your narrow self-interest or what the shareholders of the company wanted? Were there moments where, you know, kind of really come to Jesus moments for you guys? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but. The thing that comes to mind for me was more about uh, the first time Ben and Jerry's took a position on uh, the military budget for the country. So this was back during the Cold War in the late 80s when the US and Russia were in a huge military buildup. And Ben and Jerry's came out with an ice cream bar on a stick and decided to call the product a peace pop and use the packaging to talk about the military budget and redirecting 1% of the military budget to peace through understanding initiatives. The idea being that when people in countries got to know each other, they wouldn't want to bomb the crap out of each other. And as I mentioned, this is the first time Ben and Jerry's was considering taking a, a, essentially a political stand yeah. that could be considered controversial. It was it was very controversial within Ben and Jerry's. Uh, people were concerned that the company was going to be seen as unpatriotic, soft on defense, that there were going to be, uh, you know, that it, is it appropriate for a business to take a position on a government program? The concern was consumers and stores would boycott us, distributors wouldn't 
take the product in and Ben in his in his wisdom essentially forced it on the company. <laughs> I love it. And none of those bad things ever happened. Certainly not everybody agreed with with the stand Ben and Jerry's was taking, but even people who didn't agree with it respected the idea that the business was taking a position on an issue that was that was not designed to have it make more money but was designed to look out for the common good. You sold the shit out of those <laughs> ice creams, ice creams bars though, didn't you? They were really good. Really, really good. You know, but did you sell a lot of them? We did, you know, so the other interesting thing about <laughs> this though, in, in talking about this is because we're talking a little bit about ice cream. So we're talking about the name of the product and we're talking about the message and whatever, but the other part of that is the product itself, that it still has to taste good. And not only yeah. not only was Ben having the company call it a peace pop, but he was the guy doing all the quality control on the product and eating a, an enormous amount of ice cream. <laughs> I mean, Ben, you should talk about all the variations of peace pops you were going through. Yes, I sacrificed my body for my company. Uh, I used to weigh 50 pounds more. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot that goes. There's the thickness of the chocolate. There's the different types of chocolate. There's the different melting points. There's the inclusions and chunks. I mean, this is not a simple thing. It must have been such an interesting time in the evolution of the business and a scary thing to have taken that stand. And to, to have been ready for the trade-offs that might have been necessary and that, you know, just who knows, Safeway could have kicked you out, right? Yeah, yeah, they could have. Yeah, like, uh, right? They could have said, no, we're just not going to carry your brand anymore. But, you know, this is a good um, segue since we're talking about politics to get into your, your latest political endeavor, your campaign to end qualified immunity. I guess to start... Just explain what qualified immunity is, and then you can tell us um, how you got into the issue and and what what you're doing to try to end it. You know, qualified immunity is essentially a get out of jail free card for bad cops. So, based on this judicial doctrine, you know, if a cop uh, assaults me, I am not allowed to sue that cop unless some other cop in the past has assaulted a person like me in exactly the same situation and been convicted of it. And the reality is that there's never exactly the same situation. So the courts just keep on throwing out these, these, these suits, these civil suits against police that have brutalized and killed mostly black people. You know, so like millions of Americans, Jerry and I have been outraged about one, that they're doing it, and two, that they're literally getting away with murder before our very eyes. And we came to understand that a big part of the problem was this, this legal doctrine. And so we are very focused on this very broad coalition now to, to end that legal doctrine our big obstacle is the fraternal order of police. Right. And, and and when did you launch this campaign? Well, we started working on it 
uh, I think soon after uh, George Floyd mm-hmm. was murdered, and we haven't we we just went public with it, you know, just a, a few months ago. Right, and and just to be clear, as unlikely as it is for a cop to be convicted of murder, it's nearly impossible to actually sue the cop civilly for damages. Right, and that and that's and that's where qualified immunity comes in. That's what makes it essentially impossible. I mean, it's a fundamentally unfair and unjust doctrine that disproportionately impacts black and brown people. It's a simple matter of accountability. You know, Mm -hmm. for, for us being in business, we understand that having accountability for ourselves and for our people is, is the key to getting desired results. And yet the police who are authorized to carry guns and and to essentially kill people in our name don't have that same accountability. So what we're looking for is not an anti-police measure. As Ben said, qualified immunity only helps bad cops. And and so it's not just that uh, this is a bad policy, but all these victims are not able to get any justice or restitution. And there's real people involved. Ben has just come out with a book. Ben, why don't you mention your book? Above the Law is a book that gives 16 stories of individuals who have been abused or murdered by the police or had hundreds of thousands of dollars stolen from them by the police and had their cases thrown out of court because of this absurd judicial doctrine that kind of the basis of which is assuming that law enforcement officers do not know the law unless there was a previous cop convicted of doing exactly the same thing. So to fix this, what do you have to do? All you have to do is pass a law. I mean, Congress already passed a law, and they passed the law virtually for the same reason. After Reconstruction, the problem was that police officers in the South were still members of the Ku Klux Klan, and they were brutalizing Black people. And so Congress passed a law that said any citizen if their rights or constitutional rights have been violated by any state employee, including the cops, they can sue that state employee. And so that was that was solving the problem. And then in the 60s, this was kind of at the same time as the Freedom Rides. I think there was a, a case that came to the Supreme Court that people wanted to sue the police for arresting them. And the Supreme Court came up with this new theory or doctrine that said that, no, you can't sue the police. So there's a legislative solution. You can do it federally. And there's proposed legislation now. Uh, You can do it at the state level. Colorado has ended qualified immunity. New York City just ended qualified immunity. In New Mexico, there's a bill to end qualified immunity that's gone through both houses and is waiting to be signed by the governor. So you can do it that way. 
you know, Ben mentioned that there's a broad coalition of advocacy groups who are working together on this. Uh, the ACLU, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. On the libertarian side, there's Cato Institute, Institute for Justice, Americans for Prosperity. So it's liberals, libertarians, lawyers, former police, athletes, business people, all working together the group we have, the Campaign to End Qualified Immunity, you can visit the website. What's that website, Ben? Holdcopsaccountable.org. Yeah, and we'll put that website in the show notes Thank for you. the podcast to make sure that folks can get involved if they'd like to. Yeah, so if, right, so if people want to get involved, they should go to that site and there's some place to sign up. Yeah, put in your email address and then we let you know when there's a law that's in the legislature in your state, or if we need a letter to the editor, or when it's time to, you know, let your uh, federal representatives know that you support overturning this law. That's super exciting. So we always end our podcast with one question, which is, why do you guys do this work? Well, as I've always said, <laughs> you know, when you're confronted with situations of injustice, you have three choices. You can ignore it, you can complain about it, or you can do something about it. I feel better doing something about it. How about you, Jerry? Yeah, you know, I think, I think Ben and I, and many, many other people, we've had very privileged lives. And uh, not everybody has all the same privileges and benefits that we've had. And it's not right, first of all, but we all suffer when there is not justice in the world. Uh, you know, the thing that, that I keep trying to figure out, which I certainly haven't figured out yet, is how to work on all these horrible things and bring love to it. You know, because I believe love is love is at the at the center of everything. And I just haven't quite been able to bring it to everything I do. And I'm, I'm going to keep trying to do that. I think that's a noble cause. Well, guys, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a real honor and pleasure to get to chat with you and meet with you. And um, we wish you the best of luck on your campaign. And you have my promise that I'm going to check in to what our team is doing on that issue here in Washington State. Thank and you. We will let you know. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, this has been great. great. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining right. us. Hi, I'm Ashley, one of the producers here at Pitchfork Economics. While we had Ben and Jerry's ear for this interview, Nick couldn't help but take a chance at pitching his very own ice cream flavor to the guys. Here's how it went. Okay, Nick, this is your big moment. For years, we have been hoping to influence the ice cream flavor at Ben and Jerry's, and we had this awesome idea for Trickle Down Trickle, which, what was it, Goldie? It was Trickle Down Ice Cream, a very thin layer of high-quality chocolate at the top. On the top? And, and then vanilla and 99%, all the way down. Yeah, 99. Yeah. What do you think? Well, that's very similar to the flavor <laughs> called Bernie's Yearning that we came out with for <laughs> Bernie's campaign. It had a disc of chocolate on the top and 
nothing in the bottom and yeah <laughs> you're supposed to break it up and mix it around yeah there you go i love it some like neoliberal delight something like that so yeah it turns out they already made a flavor like that but it got the wheels turning in our heads about what other economics related ice cream flavor possibilities could be out there so we asked you our listeners to call in with your best ideas this is Jeff in Minnesota. They have a couple ice cream flavors for you. This one is called Neoliberal Neapolitan. This throwback to the classic chocolate vanilla strawberry trio will leave you asking for more and more. Through extensive lobbying efforts with FDA, ingredients long banned through meddling liberal agenda regulations have been made available again, including all natural unpasteurized cream deliciously sweet cyclomates, and eye-popping red dye number two. Negotiations for internationally sourced ingredients ensure that the manufacturer is not subject to those pesky fair trade agreements, passing on savings that are sure to keep you smiling. Hi, this is Brett Armstrong from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and my economic-inspired ice cream flavor is Fudge the Numbers Raspberry Nut Ripple, featuring chunks of fudge, inaccurate graph chart raspberry ripples, and lots of trickle-down clown car nuts. Hi, my name is Jonathan Allman. I'm calling from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I have an ice cream submission. It is the Candy Keynesian Crumble. The description is, the plain vanilla ice cream keeps interest rates very low, so it relies on peppermint candy pieces to stimulate consumption. The hard chocolate wafers crumble easily, multiplying with every spoonful. Also, the container has a special feature. It has an extra wide lip that serves as a liquidity trap if you leave it out too long. That's the candy Keynesian crumble. Hi, my name is Alona Roth, and my ice cream flavor is the rocky road to serfdom. And sure enough, that's where neoliberal thinking has brought a lot of us. Hi, Nick. This is Brian Tapp from Des Moines, Iowa. I've developed a flavor called Supply Side Surprise, which is a chocolatey, nutty ice cream um, that's on the top and down the sides, and it also is caviar-infused ice cream on the top. The surprise is the shape of the pint container, although it appears to be full, but it has a convex bubble opening from the bottom, revealing not that it's a, a true pint of ice cream, but more of a quarter cup. My name is Ben and I have an ice cream flavor. Try some infrastructure delight. It has flavors galore. Those highway arteries that you want unclogging, this will unclog the most congested. Want to lift those sagging muscles due to old age? You can gorge on the $400 billion for senior care provisions. And is your R&D sagging? Well, you can reverse that trend with some infrastructure D. Do you crave to suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere? Well, infrastructure delight works like a vacuum. It's got a crunchy taste and it'll leave you with a feeling you've overindulged. But in fact, it's 100% healthy for your economy and it's guilt-free. Hi, Nick. This is Rick from Salem, Oregon. Okay, I've got an ice cream for you. Neoclassical ice cream contains valuable fruits and nuts, but they're only available by imposing taxes and cutting social programs. 
M.M.T.T. Fruity releases these fruits and nuts up for all to enjoy without the need for austerity. And finally, this next one might be our favorite submission because it's exclusively for the podcast. Hi, Nick. Hi, Pitchfork team. I'm calling about the ice cream flavor, and I think it should be Pitchfork Pistachio as one flavor option. That anonymous listener didn't really elaborate on the pistachio choice, but if we had to guess the meaning behind it, we'd say it's because pistachio is a totally underrated flavor, maybe even a cult favorite, and it's a little nutty. So yeah, that works for us. Thanks for all the great submissions. It's safe to say you definitely delivered. So one of my big takeaways from our conversation, Nick, is how how important corporate culture is and how founders can can instill a culture in a company that that actually outlives them or sur- survives their involvement uh, right. in the operations of the business. Right. So that it's, you know, the corporation is not just this faceless monolithic thing. No. Uh, it reflects the, the people who own it and run it and work there. That's right. And the values that they bring and inculcate in the not just the, you know, the feelings of the employees, but also the processes by which they operate the business. Uh, right. For sure. True. And there are examples in our country and around the world where fine people have run great businesses that make great products and, and do well by their workers and their suppliers and the community at large. But sadly, those folks are in the minority because Lots and lots of people who start businesses aren't fine people. They're selfish shitbags who don't care about anything but themselves. And um, which is not to say that's how all business people are. It's that's absolutely not true. But it is, look, in every large group of people, there will be some very kind and generous people and there will be some shitbags. That's just in the nature of any human society. And, And that's why... I'm much more hardcore, I think, than Ben and Jerry around corporate governance and uh, standards, because I don't think we can leave it up to the kindness of strangers to make the society work well. Uh, I think we need to require people to do the right thing, uh, because if we don't, a few people will do the right thing, but mostly the people who want to do the wrong thing will drag down the people who want to do the right thing because doing the right thing always involves trade-offs. Doing the wrong thing almost never does. Bad behavior drives out good behavior because exactly. in the end you have to compete. And if yes. your uh, your competitors are, are paying parasite wages yeah. and you know causing all types of uh, negative externalities to save money, you're faced with the situation of uh, do the same thing to be able to compete on price or risk being driven out of business. That's right. And, you know, with all due respect to Ben and Jerry, if you sort of zoom out and, you know, I'm no expert in the ice cream industry, but it seems pretty clear that they used their niche and their commitment to social justice as a marketing, as a super effective marketing strategy too. You know, like if you have a tiny fraction of the market, those stands that they took uh, turned into 
winning differentiators for a huge proportion of the population who thought it was really cool and great and funny and and uh, important. But also showed that you could you could actually make money doing that. that That's that, right. That that could be very good for business doing the right thing and making that your brand. But all that said, Nick, you're right. We can't rely on a couple of good eggs like Ben and Jerry and the culture they create to change corporate culture uh, in the large and in in the aggregate. We we need a a strong government to do that. That's right. And, you know, government is simply uh, government is the people, right? That's what a democracy is. And having the citizens of a country hold the businesses in the country to a pro-social standard is essential to having a high-functioning society, which is really important. And, you know, like, look, if Ben and Jerry weren't fine people, they would not now be devoting their time and resources to ending, you know, another injustice, which is qualified immunity. You know, at the end of the day, Ben and Jerry's ice cream used their sort of position in the market and their marketing strategies to generate positive social change. But now Ben and Jerry are using their cred as business people and their celebrity to continue to make social change in a positive way, which is super cool. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.